Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The uh, top news this morning, Lisa, does come from China. I'm um, yes. cutting the car import duty on passenger cars to 15% from 25% previously. Um, it's news and it's a big move. It is a big move. The question is, who will it help? Is it going to more likely help Tesla? Is it going to more likely help European car makers? Uh, they also say that they're going to increase some of their agricultural purchases. And the U.S. is saying that they're probably not going to impose some of the tariffs that they had talked about earlier. My question is, with all of this, what's tradable here, right? I mean, how, how much That's can we actually rely on these sorts of tea leaves that are coming from Washington, D.C.? And uh, here to answer that for us is Bill Blaine. He is uh, Mint Partners Fixed Income Strategist and Head of Capital Markets. Bill, uh, come on in here. Can you just give us your sense of whether any headlines that we've gotten with respect to China and U.S. trade negotiations have actually made you want to trade anything? Um, good morning. It's all part of the ongoing narrative, I suppose. It's very easy to find negative confirmation bias in practically anything that's to do with uh, global geopolitical news these days. So when you do get something that sounds positive, like uh, your Treasury Secretary saying the trade war is over, or the Chinese making such a conciliatory gesture, you would expect that markets would go soaring highwards on the good news. But in fact, that rally we had yesterday in the US stock market was just about the least convincing thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Volumes were tiny and it petered out during the day. John, that's a technical term. Is that is that a technical term, Bill? What? Which one? Which one <laughs> of my many? The least convincing. The least yeah, convincing. convincing rally yeah, ever. I, least least convincing ever since last week. <laughs> what was what was unconvincing about it, Bill? And what's unconvincing about the moves that we've seen in the volume last was week? absolutely tiny. It yeah. opened up much higher and then just range traded through the day. So do you think this is it, Bill? Do you think the market is unconvinced of what could happen with China and the United States, or ultimately, is your view that what happens with China and the United States isn't of importance at this point? People always overestimate the effects of geopolitics or politics. Uh, what you need to do is draw out what the long term is going to be. And I'm actually very positive on the long term. What's really going on in terms of the US-China cold trade war is about negotiating new terms of trade, which are long term going to be very, very positive. We're going to see the issue of IP addressed. We're going to see uh, a complete change in the way that trade is done, not just between China and the US, but we're going to see negotiations all around the world, especially here in the UK, where we need to make new friends. Yeah, it, you have uh, quite, quite something positive in your porridge, you know, in your morning note that you put out uh, last week. You you blamed us. You said that we just like bad news because it's what sells and that yeah. people are focusing on that, um, but that we've got it all wrong and things are great. I wouldn't say things are great, but things are far less bad than than uh, a lot of the negative bias would have us believe. All right. So give us a sense, given the fact that we do have a strengthening dollar, that we have seen, you know, some increasing jitters in emerging markets and some other places. You know, is that wrong? I mean, do you think that that we can just have, you know, yields rise and, and you know, in the U.S. and everywhere else stay calm and 
this is all fine and a great normalization or does anything keep you up at night? Oh gosh, there's so many things keep me up at night just now. Uh, lots of things to worry about and there are so many inconsistencies in this market. But if we, we go to the basics, there's three things I think lie at the basics of where we should be market-wise just now. It is clear that interest rates are going to normalize. We are in to a bond bear market. The problem is parts of that bear market don't yet realize it. So we've got the incredible situation where uh, investment grade bonds issued by the most likely people to pay you back are actually the worst performing part of the market. Whereas the high yield market, i.e. Yeah. those who are least likely to pay you back, are outperforming the people who will pay you back. And that just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, then we've got um, people worried about stock markets because if bond rates rise, that's bad for stocks. Well, we're a long way from that being a real concern. But then I think we're also seeing completely new parts of the market emerge. Uh, for instance, the alternative sector, investing in real assets, which provide you with natural inflation hedges because you own a real asset. And that's very important in a world where we see the oil prices have now effectively doubled since the low. And remember, when oil prices hit $40, we were all telling ourselves this was the new long-term future for oil. Well, guess what? We're back up to 80, and I guess we're going to go higher from here because the world changes, and the world is an incredibly complex yeah. place. And it is changing, and let's pick up on the first point. Um, the issue in credit right now, it's not just that junk is outperforming. It's the uh, junkiest part of junk that is outperforming. It's been the triple Cs, Bill. Yep. Um, what is the message, the signal that someone experienced in the world of credit like yourself um, takes from that this year? Um <laughs> Well, what signal? Well, you know what, John? I've been doing this so long that nothing surprises me anymore. Uh, what worries me more than high yield is why people are involved in high yield. Now, there are lots of people who understand high yield perfectly. What's worrying me is the number of yield tourists who 10 years ago would be buying AAA sovereign paper yep. who are now buying C paper and even worse, are buying B paper that one little step above junk status in the expectation that it's an investment-grade piece of paper. Now, they're going to get a terrible shock when interest rates really start to bite and we start to see an awful lot of companies going into a downgrade cycle because we are still lagging when it comes to downgrades. So to what extent, Bill, is there significant rate risk in high yield that perhaps people aren't appreciating? That's a very, very good question. My own view is that there is significant risk that a lot of zombie com companies that have been uh, that are highly levered in the bond markets and the leveraged lending markets are going to experience difficulties. Um, but that could be overcome if we see real economic performance that enables these com companies to do better. My worry is that we are going to remain in this kind of new normal, slow recovery rather than stellar growth environment. And that's very negative for a lot of over-leveraged companies as rates start to seriously rise. Bill Blaine, great to catch up with you. Good friend of mine from back in London who I haven't been able to speak to for a long, long time. So, Bill, we finally got to do it on radio um, live. Bill Blaine, Mint Partners, Fixed Income Strategist and Head of uh, Capital Markets. Always great to catch up with you. Lisa, um, it's not a pop quiz as such, but of the 28.9 million um, automobiles sold in China last year, do you know 
how many were imported? Uh, no, I do not. But I'm going to guess a small proportion it of was, them. <laughs> it was 4.2%. There you go. Four, By the way. 4.2%. John, I don't think that we fully appreciated the intimacy of your connections that you catch up with people. Well, I've got to on do it on radio because I, no, I have no time to pick up <laughs> those, a phone those really, in real life. Those, those lovely heart-to-hearts. They're, they're, I can I'm tell wiping you, the tears away I can from tell my you, eyes if you don't, right now. If you don't know Bill Blaine on pretty much every credit desk in London, um, if you've been around for a couple of decades, at some point you've worked with Bill. Um, Bill's that well connected in credit markets um, in the city. So it's always great to get Bill's insight because so many people have worked alongside Bill. So we'll have listeners in the city of London right now in a world of credit that probably know Bill <laughs> at some point from somewhere. And they'll be catching up with him the same way that you are. Precisely. I'm really pleased to say that joining us now is a giant in advertising. He ran U.S. sales for Google. He's the former CEO of AOL. He now serves as the CEO of Oath, overseeing AOL and Yahoo for Verizon. It's Tim Armstrong, the Oath CEO. And Tim, I didn't realize that you were a journalist back in the day. Back in the day. Boston Local tw News. 25 years ago. So should we start there and have a chat about journalism yeah. just to begin? Are we seeing the death of clickbait? Is that finally happening, Tim? I, I think what you've seen is uh, you're seeing a flight to quality right now. And I, one of the great things that's happening on the internet and mobile right now is as the services are getting more and more uh, focused on not having fake news and really consumer trust, that's going to have all the algorithms change underneath how news gets distributed. And you're going to find that journalism is going to come up in the ecosystem you know, very quickly. Back in uh, 2009, Google released something called the Panda release on the web index, which put higher quality up. And I think what you're seeing now is the quote unquote panda release for the rest of the internet and social. And so I'm, I'm very bullish. Even if you look at this, all the services in the last six, seven months, all of them have been putting higher quality journalism up to the top of the consumer front end. And that's great, great for journalism. Um, there's a dirty secret, though, that uh, quality journalism actually costs money, and you're seeing an increasing number of outlets, including this one, recognize that and start charging uh, people to see their articles. I'm wondering how that challenges you uh, from a distributor model, given the fact that so many headlines lead to uh, paywalls. Yeah, so we're in a process right now. Our, our future will have uh, advertising models and also subscription models for content. Um, but I would also say one thing that's really great about what you just said is that consumer time is really important. And I think consumers optimize their time around it. So if consumers willing to pay for content, um, I think that's a good signal. And second of all, I think on the ads model, the quality um, will force advertising to get higher quality as well uh, overall. So I th th this whole, whole trend will have improvements on both sides of the business. You talked about subscription model. And one thing that a number of outlets have tried to do is pull together a bunch of the major uh, media outlets and offer a sort of joint subscription to all of them. That struggled to get all of them on board. I'm wondering, have you tried that? Are you going to try that? What progress is there to be made in that front? Yeah, one of the things that we're you know heavily thinking through is a much deeper membership model where where members will uh, you know basically get more and more benefits from us, and we have a billion consumers, so we have access to a lot of consumer scale. Um, the the biggest thing though we want uh, out of the future of the media system and journalism is to basically have we are big investors in high quality journalism. Is for our journalists and our partner, we have about forty thousand publishing partners for all of them the, the biggest scale access they can, and whether that's paid, whether it's 
a subscription model or whether it's through ads, one of the things we're innovating right now on the front end a lot is how do we have more consumers on more types of high quality content more constantly? And this summer we're going to launch four super channels in news, sports, finance, and entertainment. And that will give uh, our partners plus our content direct access on mobile to some of the highest quality journalism in the world. We just announced a deal with Samsung two weeks ago to put our brands directly on Samsung phones. And so, uh, you know, our, we're a company that's investing in what you're talking about. Yeah. So our job is to get it on the biggest distribution we possibly can. Tim, it just feels like we're at a bit of a tipping point at the moment with uh, Mark Zuckerberg on his apology tour on the way they've used data and the way they've essentially made money through advertising as well. Have we reached a tipping point? Have we reached saturation, so to speak, after years of immense growth at places like Google, Facebook, etc.? Are we there now? Yeah, I would just say, you know, there's something uh, physical happening this week in the digital world, which is GDPR, you know, yeah. launching in Europe. And that's a that's a real physical change to the way that the internet and mobile works in Europe. It's also going to cascade across the rest of the world. So what, what you're seeing in Europe this week are the reviews with Mark Zuckerberg uh, is really the start of what I would say is, I would call it almost reverse commerce with consumers, where consumers have had all their data on servers, and now data is going to start to be transferred back to the consumer. We built our dashboards a year ago thinking this was going to happen globally. So we're, we're our business model in the future will allow consumers to own their data, transact yeah. on their data. And that's a super important change. And by the way, that's why this week it's getting a lot of attention. But yeah. there's actually a big physical change that many people don't know about happening this week. Well, you talk about transact on their data. I want to pick up on that because that's a really compelling point. In other words, people might be able to get paid yes. for giving their data over to certain advertisers. That might take the revenue away from you. Right, because uh, advertisers can just go direct to the consumer uh, and pay them. How concerned are you about that? Um, in our business model, we're not concerned. The ad business is between a probably $800 billion and trillion dollar industry. Um, much of it is built on not direct-to-consumer uh, right now, going through really large third parties. We can be one of the largest direct-to-consumer businesses and facilitate that. So I think our model actually is going to get advantaged in this change because we have access directly on people's mobile phones. We have access directly to a billion consumers. So you're going to offer them money by way of the advertisers and act as a broker for them kind of? We... Uh, we believe in the future there'll be more economic models for consumers to to make money or get value directly from their data, which is not at scale out there right now. So, uh, so we we I think that's one of the things that we're hopeful that uh, that will innovate. Tim, what are the advertisers saying to you at the moment? Um, if you take Facebook as an example, a couple of months ago, people were worried if they were in the stock, whether the advertisers would run. Um, no sign of that actually happening. What are they saying to you? Yeah, so the advertisers, you know, again, the big digital players, if you're an advertiser, you ha pretty much have to be in digital stay with consumers. So I, I think over time, a lot of the advertisers will say they, they want to have the, some of the changes they've been talking about, but yeah. in reality, they, they're continuing to spend. Um, I was just on the phone uh, yesterday with our new uh, president, COO, Guru, uh, with the head of uh, strategy for one of the largest brands in the world, actually. We, were taught, we had this exact conversation with them. And the, you know, the brand said to us, there's three things they're really interested in. One is direct-to-consumer relationships. Two is using their data effectively. They have tons of data but don't know how to use it. And three is how do they basically add non-commoditized value. Some of the digital channels they go through take all the value away from them. And yeah. the consumer thinks the platform has the value and not the brand. So, you know, our business right now is to take those three items, direct-to-consumer data and how to decommoditize the ad system and build that. And that's a differentiator from us from Google and Facebook. Let's wrap things up by talking about your business. It's been a year, I believe, since Oath came about and and I laughed at you on air and said, Oath, really, Tim? Oath? And you said to me, give it time. 
you'll get used to it, and I guess I've got used to it a little bit. Do you have your three-word oath yet? I, I don't. Should I have? You have one? to have one. <laughs> no, do, yes. really. You have to have oh, a three-word oath. I'm gonna have yes, to do that. Yes, hundred percent. Mine is never give up. You guys <laughs> oh, should each all thirteen thousand. Everybody in your company have one. Everyone like that? has an oath, and not just everyone in our company. Now our partners and customers are starting to come up with them. Are they Does really? Uh, Does yes. anybody laugh? No. They. By the way, if you go around people uh, meaningfully on their email signatures or on the walls around the office, put their oaths up, and you. Would be surprised how uh, you know thirteen thousand people come up with three word oaths that are just amazing and very personal uh, to them. So it's actually <laughs> I know what become my a big part. Would what would it be? Let's go Mets. Let's go. <laughs> there you go. That's a perfect one. What would yours That's be, perfect. John? Let's hear yours. I'm gonna have to come up with it in a commercial break. <laughs> He's like, and that will. Be All right. Never. Well, next time I come back, you need, I need I will, to have I your promise own. I'll have that for I, you, Tim. How's business doing? What are you excited about at the moment? Uh, super excited about what we're doing, both on the brand experiences side. So we. We have TechCrunch Disrupt coming up in September in, in San Francisco. It's at the Moscone Center, which is the largest convention center there. So that's gone from a startup when we bought it now to being one of the most influential tech brands. Uh, we have Can coming up with all the global advertisers in, in France in a couple of weeks. We're launching a new uh, ad uh, system uh, basically there. So we're excited about all the work that's gotten done and, and more importantly, excited about the fact that the companies came together. You know, we have a clear strategy of building brands people love. And uh, I think as you go through the summer and into the fall, the proof points, we've gone through a construction zone into something that will look like a finished product. And uh, just really excited about the 13,000 people and the billion consumers we have and putting them at the center of everything that we're doing. I promise to come up with a three-word oath if I get to go to Cannes. <laughs> Um, with, with the team. There you go. Tim Arms. Never, never I, give up, John. I, 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 I always learn something when Tim joins us and whenever I listen to him. Truly a giant in advertising, and I mean that, Tim. It's great to catch up with you. Thank Thanks, you. Tim Armstrong, the Oath CEO. Since the March lows, the shares of Facebook have gained more than 20%. And today, members of the European Parliament are going to get the chance to question Facebook Chief Executive Mark Zuckerberg about everything from Cambridge Analytica as well as Europe's new privacy rules. Here to help us understand what's going on at Facebook is David Kirkpatrick. He is the author of The Facebook Effect, and he is also the chief executive and the founder of Techconomy. Me. David Kirkpatrick, what do you believe Mark Zuckerberg will try to get across to EU regulators? Hey, thanks, Pim. Uh, well, I think the, the, the main thing he's going to get across is please don't mess with me. Um, and what he will do, but how he will do that is by saying he's sorry. Um, it's, it, I think some of his testimony has already been reported publicly where he's planning to apologize and say they need to do better, that they're taking responsibility, blah, blah, blah. It's PR 101 and an effort simply to, I would say, deflect attention and try to minimize the significance of the inquiry generally. So, David, uh, you sound pretty negative on Facebook, and you have been, and with respect to uh, their data disclosures, uh, their data usage, and uh, and sort of the, the lack of a, a quick fix to some of the problems that people have pointed out for many years. And yet, uh, what should they be doing right now that would put them in better standing to you? 
they should be much more transparent than they're being. They should be having a much more ongoing dialogue where they're much more open to really explaining, taking input from they should be asking others what they should do rather than saying what they're, that they're going to do the right thing and leaving it to an opaque process for that to be determined. And I want to clarify, I'm actually not negative on Facebook. I'm, I consider myself quite knowledgeable about them, but I think among their critics, I'm somewhat unusual in that I still argue Facebook is fundamentally a very positive force in society and has a lot of wonderful characteristics. But I believe that when it comes to their political impact, and also to a similar in a similar way their impact on the privacy of individuals they have been extremely cavalier over an extremely long time and they refuse to even think about taking to, to even use the word responsibility until the russian um, electoral manipulation scandal arose in the united states um, and the cambridge analytica thing that followed um, and and they've really changed their tune for what seemed to me to be PR reasons rather than a genuine desire to take stock of and take responsibility for the inordinate weight they have in public discourse around the world. They are in an absolutely unique position as a commercial company that is in effect the public square in many, many countries, and that is probably fundamentally untenable, but at a minimum, it is something that requires a much more robust dialogue between the company and the public, which they have been resisting and continue to resist. David Kirkpatrick, is it at all possible, and I'm just, you know, I have no detailed knowledge of their own technology systems, but that the company is just technically overwhelmed by their success and the scale of the issue. I mean, I read last, I yeah. guess it was the last couple of weeks that they took down something like a half a billion accounts. And I was staggered by that number. And yet that doesn't seem to be a big deal when it comes to their daily operations. Are they just over their heads? Well, that's a great question, Tim, and that number shocked me also, considering that they claim to have 2.2 billion active users. Right. They did say recently that they took down half a billion fake, fake accounts, is what they said they took down, and that was the first time they'd ever disclosed the number of fake accounts they were taking down. It seemed... Uh, discordant with the, the active user number. And I don't, again, though they won't really answer questions about things like this. This is just the kind of thing I mean. It doesn't really make sense. It's almost impossible for outsiders like us to assess what capabilities they do have because they are very high-handed and they have extraordinary high opinion of their own technical competence. And from their standpoint, they would say, oh, no, we're not overwhelmed. Absolutely not. But in reality, I think looking in from the outside, it's easy to imagine that they may be. And here's an example where I think they are, if I might, to slightly take a different subject slightly. Um, look at the way they've expanded in literally every country around the world. Then look at the fact that in many, many of the countries where they refused to gate their growth in any way, where they simply allowed themselves and encouraged themselves to grow rapidly, they have absolutely no local language expertise. So in countries like Myanmar, for example, um, which is one that's been very well documented, or, or Sri Lanka, where they have no local language speakers to speak that the, the monitor content, their, their service has been used in extremely toxic political ways, even as they're accepting large amounts of advertising revenue from the government, from uh, bad actors, from good actors, from all 
spectrums of the yeah. political scene, which is the way they work. Everybody advertises on Facebook. They have no ability to monitor that. To me, that's fundamentally irresponsible, that they let themselves grow in that way, yeah. and they don't have the capability to manage it. So in that sense, they are overwhelmed. So, uh, David, you raise a really interesting point, and I want to build on that because uh, Bloomberg News report today talked a little bit about what Zuckerberg plans to emphasize when he does testify in front of European uh, officials. He plans to emphasize his investments in an artificial intelligence research lab in Paris and uh, data centers in Sweden. Given the fact that uh, your point, perhaps they may be a little overwhelmed or or not capable of monitoring things appropriately at this point in the eyes of many uh, who are concerned. Is this the right tack to take? Well, it's a good tack to take, but it's not sufficient. It's, it's definitely a good direction. They do contribute to the economy massively, and obviously they will capture the attention of European legislators to that degree. They're, you know, they, they say they employ 10,000 people in the EU. But let's keep in mind, these com- this company's going to make r- close to $20 billion in net profit this year. I mean, these guys are not hurting. They could do anything they want, and they sh- they. You know, of course, they're a huge political and, 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 and economic force, and they want to brag about that. But again, it's a matter of what is sufficient, what is insufficient. And I think it's very complicated because we've never seen a commercial company with this combination of political and social power and profits. I mean, either one of them. We haven't seen either one. We've never seen a company with 40% net margins at a $55 billion annual revenue run weight. And we've never seen a commercial company that has this kind of weight in the social discourse around the world. These are bizarre, unprecedented developments that the world has to take stock of much more methodically. And the company is resisting that. That's my point. David, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, David Kirkpatrick, David Kirkpatrick, the Techonomy chief executive, talking about Facebook's apology tour. The Lowe's JCPenney uh, dynamic today. You can see JCPenney shares uh, down more than 4% as it announces that its CEO, Marvin Ellison, is leaving abruptly and taking the top job at home improvement retailer Lowe's. Lowe's shares up just a bit. I want to bring in Poonam Goyal, who covers all these things for us for Bloomberg Intelligence. And uh, Poonam, what's your reaction to this? Do we have any sense why Marvin Ellison is leaving JCPenney? I mean, I mean, look, I think, you know, for him, he's had such an extensive background in the home space with Home Depot that this probably is a great opportunity for him to go to Lowe's. Um, that said, you know, where that leaves JCPenney is in a bit of a tight spot because now what, right? He's, he's implemented all this diversification with the extension of big ticket appliances, furniture, and so forth. Who's going to come in and take a position um, and, and what will they do? Will they keep that vision or will they change it completely similar to what Ron Johnson did prior? Now, Marvin Ellison is, in a sense, returning to the home improvement world because previous to his employment at JCPenney, he was in charge of the Home Depot's U.S. stores. That is correct. And he worked for Target previous to that. Correct. So he's got all the experience necessary to make Lowe's a real powerhouse. Well, I mean, he has the experience that he could transfer to Lowe's very easily. Will it fix Lowe's or not is a separate question. 
So, uh, Poonam, there's a question whether Ellison was truly effective at J.C. Penney. He uh, joined in 2014, assumed the top job a year later. The company still hasn't done well. In fact, if you ask most people when the last time uh, they went to low, uh, J.C. Penney was, they probably uh, would shake their heads, squint their eyes, and think, uh, or else say, "What is J.C. Penney?" Uh, so, so why hasn't he been successful? You know, you know, I guess you. you have- it's not that he hasn't been successful. He stopped the bleeding at JCPenney, right? If you look prior to 2014, Seamster sales were declining in the high single-digit to double-digit range. He um, turned them positive in the following two years, but that was because of easy comparisons. In 2016, 2017, really, sales were just unchanged. So he didn't grow Seamster sales, and that's really where the issue is. And and part of that comes from just not being able to turn apparel. Um, 50% of JCPenney's sales or more come from apparel. He's done a great job in home and Sephora and salon and so forth. But at the end of the day, it's really apparel. It comes down to apparel. And that's where I think he's been slow to make good progress. Well, would the progress that he have made involved downsizing JCPenney even more? I think so. I mean, my view has been that JCPenney needs to trim more stores. We had that announcement of about, of a little over 100 doors um, prior to last year. And, you know, since then, they only announced eight store closings for this year. And the fleet still over 800 stores is too big, in my view. Is JCPenney going to finally go under ever? I don't know. You know, your guess is as good as mine on that. Um, but, no, I mean, but- like, honestly, this just to, to view this from from the credit market standpoint for a second, because uh, that's my my home turf. I mean, people have been trying to short JCPenney forever. And right. if you go to the derivatives traders, I mean, JCPenney is the risk trade. If you think the world's going to fall apart, bet, bet against JCPenney, it will be the first uh, shoe to drop. It has failed. Somehow this thing crawls along, and yet it has, uh, you know, at this point, from a brand recognition standpoint, I don't know. I don't know. But but I've been hearing that about Sears for a decade now. That's right. <laughs> so, so, so I don't have an answer for that. But, you know, to, to his credit, I mean, yes, uh, as long as they can keep free cash flow positive, you know, I, I'd ask our credit analyst that question. But I think, I think the key is really if sales declined from here, then I think they're in a little bit of more trouble. But if they can hold steady, close more doors, improve the apparel pad, I, I think that's really the opportunity here. But I guess that the, what I'm trying to get at here is let's say they close more stores, then they have to mm-hmm. beef up their presence online. What do they offer at this point uh, that Amazon can't or that any other retailer uh, really cannot offer with possibly even better uh, better computer programming and a better display and a fresher start and less overhead? I mean, the, the, the advantage they have is their private brands, right? And if um, you're a shopper of St. John's Bay, you can't get that on Amazon. So as long as they continue to drive traction in their private brands, there's a place for those brands, and someone will be looking for them and shopping their stores. They, they just need to really amplify that more, and, and I think that's where the struggle has been. Um, we think the apparel reset could provide them some opportunity there, but with this shakeup and Marvin Ellison leaving, there's just a huge distraction in front of them, and, and that gets me concerned. Well, Poonam, can you turn your attention now to what's going on at Lowe's? What are the issues there? I mean, are they going to have to offer a greater variety of window blinds, or maybe they're going to have to beef up their selection of Frigidaire or Whirlpool appliances? What is the issue at Lowe's? So um, Lowe's, who Seema Shah covers, you know, talking to her, it's more 
a competitive issue, right? So Home Depot is a pretty big competitor of theirs, and they're doing really well. And cutting prices isn't necessarily always the answer. So Marvin, I, I don't think he needs to diversify the product base, really, as what he did in JCPenney, which is bring in new categories. I think there's going to be execution um, issues that he'll need to work through there. Like what? I mean, what are the specifics of, of those? Maybe price. You know, um, a lot of it comes down to price and promotions. All right. And Poonam, I want to I want to shift gears a little bit because uh, while we are sort of uh, ragging on JCPenney and I'm being a little unfair, but I just feel like uh, people have been waiting for this thing to die for a long time and it really hasn't. Um, I want to shift to Kohl's because sure. they reported earnings and they uh, demonstrated that the turnaround is gaining some steam, shares rising as much as six percent in early trading. So what are they doing right that JCPenney is doing wrong? Sure. So Kohl's, um, Kohl's and JCPenney too completely different stories right here we have. Um, Same-star sales were up by 3.6% earlier this morning, and that was encouraging, and that's why the shares probably traded up pre-market. But as you're listening to the call, which I was on earlier um, prior to talking to you, you know, a lot of that 3.6% came from a shift in the friends and family event, and, and that's where the question is. So how much of it was the friends and family versus structural growth in the comp number? Yeah, so I should point out that now the shares are down more than 5% after uh, that, that call. But so that, are we basically just seeing a time when discounting is everything still? Discounting is still everything, but it really comes down to execution and, and having the right product and driving traffic to the stores. You know, with the shift to online, with Amazon and everything else that's going on in retail, the struggle is really to get the traffic in and then to improve conversion by having the right product. And for apparel, you really need to have something exciting, something different, and you need to provide some sort of experience to get that consumer to stay engaged with you. Poonam, is it also worth noting that if you go to Kohl's, you see a huge number of third-party brands, whether it's Dockers or Gloria Vanderbilt or even uh, Adidas, plus you find them doing a lot with third-party uh, offerings. For example, Carnival, uh, the cruise line, offers their cruises through Kohl's, whereas if you go to JCPenney, it's trying to promote a lot of JCPenney brands, although there are some ads for Sephora, but by and large, it's JCPenney exclusives. Yeah, I mean, all department stores have high private label penetration, which is their own brand. So for Kohl's and JCPenney, it's still a large percentage of their sales, and um, JCPenney probably a little more than Kohl's. But um, Kohl's, as you know, just launched on Under Armour in a partnership. So they're right. they're trying to beef up their national brand presence, which helps them get more traffic into the doors. Um, for JCPenney, the focus on the national label side has been more with big ticket items, whether it's home furniture or stuff like Salon and Sephora. All right. Well, I guess we're going to leave it there. I want to thank you very much, uh, Poonam Goyal, our uh, Bloomberg retail analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.